Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a classic science fiction novel written by the French author Jules Verne. It was first published in 1870 and is one of Verne's most famous works. The novel is known for its imaginative portrayal of underwater exploration and adventure. The story is narrated by Professor Pierre Aronnax, a French marine biologist who, along with his faithful servant Consal and a Canadian harpooner named Ned Land, embarks on a journey to investigate mysterious sea creatures that have been causing havoc in the world's oceans. They soon discover that these creatures are actually part of a technologically advanced submarine, the Nautilus, commanded by the enigmatic Captain Nemo. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is considered a pioneering work of science fiction and is known for its accurate and detailed descriptions of underwater life and technology. It has been adapted into numerous films, television series, and other media and continues to be a beloved classic of literature. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by Gaia's Symphony on Apple Music. Chapter Zayath Black River The portion of the terrestrial globe which is covered by water is estimated at upwards of 80 millions of acres. This fluid mass comprises 2 billion 250 millions of cubic miles, forming a spherical body of a diameter of 60 leagues, the weight of which would be 3 quintillions of tons. To comprehend the meaning of these figures, it is necessary to observe that a quintillion is to a billion as a billion is to unity. In other words, there are as many billions in a quintillion as there are units in a billion. This mass of fluid is equal to about the quantity of water which would be discharged by all the rivers of the earth in 40,000 years. During the geological epochs, the igneous period succeeded to the Achaeus. The ocean originally prevailed everywhere. Then, by degrees, in the Silurian period, the tops of the mountains began to appear, the islands emerged, then disappeared in partial deluges, reappeared, became settled, formed continents, till at length the earth became geographically arranged as we see in the present day. The solid had rested from the liquid 37,657,000 square miles, equal to 12,960,000,000 of acres. The shape of continents allows us to divide the waters into five great portions, the Arctic or frozen ocean, the Antarctic or frozen ocean, the Indian, the Atlantic, and the Pacific Oceans. The Pacific Ocean extends from north to south between the two polar circles and from east to west between Asia and America over an extent of 145 degrees of longitude. 
It is the quietest of seas. Its currents are broad and slow. It has medium tides and abundant rain. Such was the ocean that my fate destined me first to travel over under these strange conditions. Sir, said Captain Nemo, we will, if you please, take our bearings and fix the starting point of this voyage. It is a quarter to twelve. I will go up again to the surface. The captain pressed an electric clock three times. The pumps began to dry the water from the tanks, the needle of the manometer marked by a different pressure the ascent of the Nautilus, then it stopped. We have arrived, said the captain. I went to the central staircase which opened onto the platform, clambered up the iron steps, and found myself on the upper part of the Nautilus. The platform was only three feet out of water. The front and back of the Nautilus was of that spindle shape which caused it justly to be compared to a cigar. I noticed that its iron plates, slightly overlaying each other, resembled the shell which clothed the bodies of our large terrestrial reptiles. It explained to me how natural it was, in spite of all glasses, that this boat should have been taken for a marine animal. Toward the middle of the platform the longboat, half buried in the hull of the vessel, formed a slight excrescence. Fore and aft rose two cages of medium height with inclined sides and partly closed by thick lenticular glasses, one destined for the steersman who directed the Nautilus, the other containing a brilliant lantern to give light on the road. The sea was beautiful, the sky pure. Scarcely could the long vehicle feel the broad undulations of the ocean. A light breeze from the east rippled the surface of the waters. The horizon, free from fog, made observation easy. Nothing was in sight. Not a quicksand, not an island. A vast desert. Captain Nemo, by the help of his sextant, took the altitude of the sun, which ought also to give the latitude. He waited for some moments till its disk touched the horizon. Whilst taking observations, not a muscle moved. The instrument could not have been more motionless in a hand of marble. Captain Nemo took the sun's altitude. Twelve o'clock, sir, said he. When you like. I cast a last look upon the sea, slightly yellowed by the Japanese coast, and descended to the saloon. And now, sir, I leave you to your studies, added the captain, our course is E&E, &E. our depth is 26 fathoms. Here are maps on a large scale by which you may follow it. The saloon is at your disposal, and with your permission, I will retire. Captain Nemo bowed, and I remained alone, lost in thoughts all bearing on the commander of the Nautilus. For a whole hour was I deep in these reflections, seeking to pierce this mystery so interesting to me. Then my eyes fell upon the vast planisphere spread upon the table, and I placed my finger on the very spot where the given latitude and longitude crossed. The sea has its large rivers like the continents. They are special currents known by their temperature and their color. The most remarkable of these is known by the name of the Gulf Stream. 
Science has decided on the globe the direction of five principal currents, one in the North Atlantic, a second in the South, a third in the North Pacific, a fourth in the South, and a fifth in the Southern Indian Ocean. It is even probable that a sixth current existed at one time or another in the northern Indian Ocean when the Caspian and Aral Seas formed but one vast sheet of water. At this point indicated on the planisphere one of these currents was rolling, the Kurosivo of the Japanese, the Black River, which, leaving the Gulf of Bengal, where it is warmed by the perpendicular rays of a tropical sun, crosses the Straits of Malacca along the coast of Asia, turns into the North Pacific to the Aleutian Islands, carrying with it trunks of camphor trees and other indigenous productions, and edging the waves of the ocean with the pure indigo of its warm water. It was this current that the Nautilus was to follow. I followed it with my eye, saw it lose itself in the vastness of the Pacific, and felt myself drawn with it, when Ned Land and Consal appeared at the door of the saloon. My two brave companions remained petrified at the sight of the wonders spread before them. Where are we? Where are we? exclaimed the Canadian. In the museum at Quebec. My friends, I answered, making a sign for them to enter. You are not in Canada, but on board the Nautilus, 50 yards below the level of the sea. But, M. Horonax, said Ned Land, can you tell me how many men there are on board? Ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred? I cannot answer you, Mr. Land. It is better to abandon for a time all idea of seizing the Nautilus or escaping from it. This ship is a masterpiece of modern industry, and I should be sorry not to have seen it. Many people would accept the situation forced upon us, if only to move amongst such wonders. So be quiet and let us try and see what passes around us. See, exclaimed the harpooner, but we can see nothing in this iron prison. We are walking mere sailing blindly. Ned Land had scarcely pronounced these words when all was suddenly darkness. The luminous ceiling was gone and so rapidly that my eyes received a painful impression. We remained mute, not stirring, and not knowing what surprise awaited us, whether agreeable or disagreeable. A sliding noise was heard. One would have said that panels were working at the sides of the Nautilus. It is the end of the end, said Ned Land. Suddenly light broke at each side of the saloon through two oblong openings. The liquid mass appeared vividly lit up by the electric gleam. Two crystal plates separated us from the sea. At first I trembled at the thought that this frail partition might break, but strong bands of copper bound them, giving an almost infinite power of resistance. The sea was distinctly visible for a mile all round the Nautilus. What a spectacle! What pen can describe it? Who could paint the effects of the light through those transparent sheets of water and the softness of the successive gradations from the lower to the superior strata of the ocean? We know the transparency of the sea and that its clearness is far beyond that of rock water. 
The mineral and organic substances which it holds in suspension heightens its transparency. In certain parts of the ocean at the Antilles, under 75 fathoms of water can be seen with surprising clearness a bed of sand. The penetrating power of the solar rays does not seem to cease for a depth of 150 fathoms. But in this middle fluid traveled over by the Nautilus, the electric brightness was produced even in the bosom of the waves. It was no longer luminous water, but liquid light. On each side a window opened into this unexplored abyss. The obscurity of the saloon showed to advantage the brightness outside, and we looked out as if this pure crystal had been the glass of an immense aquarium. You wish to see, friend Ned, well, you see now. Curious. Curious, muttered the Canadian, who, forgetting his ill temper, seemed to submit to some irresistible attraction, and one would come further than this to admire such a sight. Ah, thought I to myself, I understand the life of this man, he has made a world apart for himself, in which he treasures all his greatest wonders. For two whole hours an aquatic army escorted the Nautilus. During their games, their bounds, while rivaling each other in beauty, brightness, and velocity, I distinguished the green labrie, the banded mullet, marked by a double line of black, the round-tailed goby of a white color with violet spots on the back, the Japanese scombrous, a beautiful mackerel of those seas with a blue body and silvery head, the brilliant azurers whose name alone defies description, some banded spares with variegated fins of blue and yellow, the woodcocks of the seas, some specimens of which attain a yard in length, Japanese salamanders, spider lampreys, serpents six feet long, with eyes small and lively, and a huge mouth bristling with teeth, with many other species. Our imagination was kept at its height, interjections followed quickly on each other. Ned named the fish, and Consal classed them. I was in ecstasies with the vivacity of their movements and the beauty of their forms. Never had it been given to me to surprise these animals, alive and at liberty, in their natural element. I will not mention all the varieties which passed before my dazzled eyes, all the collection of the seas of China and Japan. These fish, more numerous than the birds of the air, came, attracted, no doubt, by the brilliant focus of the electric light. Suddenly there was daylight in the saloon, the iron panels closed again, and the enchanting vision disappeared. But for a long time I dreamt until my eyes fell on the instruments hanging on the partition. The compass still showed the course to be E and E, the manometer indicated a pressure of five atmospheres, equivalent to a depth of 25 fathoms, and the electric log gave a speed of 15 miles an hour. I expected Captain Nemo, but he did not appear. The clock marked the hour of five. Ned Land and Consal returned to their cabin, and I retired to my chamber. My dinner was ready. It was composed of turtle soup made of the most delicate hawksbills, of a surmullet served with puff paste, the liver of which, prepared by itself, 
was most delicious, and fillets of the Emperor Holocanthus, the savor of which seemed to me superior even to salmon. I passed the evening reading, writing, and thinking. Then sleep overpowered me, and I stretched myself on my couch of Zostura, and slept profoundly whilst the Nautilus was gliding rapidly through the current of the Black River. Chapter XIVA Note of Invitation The next day was the 9th of November. I awoke after a long sleep of 12 hours. Consal came, according to custom, to know how I had passed the night and to offer his services. He had left his friend the Canadian sleeping like a man who had never done anything else all his life. I let the worthy fellow chatter as he pleased, without caring to answer him. I was preoccupied by the absence of the captain during our sitting of the day before and hoping to see him today. As soon as I was dressed I went into the saloon. It was deserted. I plunged into the study of the shell treasures hidden behind the glasses. I reveled also in great herbals filled with the rarest marine plants, which, although dried up, retained their lovely colors. Amongst these precious hydrophytes I remarked some Bordicelli, Pavanerii, delicate Charamis with scarlet tints, some fan-shaped agari, and some metabuli-like flat mushrooms, which at one time used to be classed as zoophytes, in short, a perfect series of algae. The whole day passed without my being honored by a visit from Captain Nemo. The panels of the saloon did not open. Perhaps they did not wish us to tire of these beautiful things. The course of the Nautilus was E&E, her speed 12 knots, the depth below the surface between 25 and 30 fathoms. The next day, 10th of November, the same desertion, the same solitude. I did not see one of the ship's crew, Ned and Consal spent the greater part of the day with me. They were astonished at the inexplicable absence of the captain. Was this singular man ill? Had he altered his intentions with regard to us? After all, as Consal said, we enjoyed perfect liberty, we were delicately and abundantly fed. Our host kept to his terms of the treaty. We could not complain, and, indeed, the singularity of our fate reserved such wonderful compensation for us that we had no right to accuse it as yet. That day I commenced the journal of these adventures which has enabled me to relate them with more scrupulous exactitude and minute detail. I wrote it on paper made from the Zostera Marina. November 11th, early in the morning. The fresh air spreading over the interior of the Nautilus told me that we had come to the surface of the ocean to renew our supply of oxygen. I directed my steps to the central staircase and mounted the platform. It was six o'clock, the weather was cloudy, the sea gray but calm. Scarcely a billow. Captain Nemo, whom I hoped to meet, would he be there? I saw no one but the steersman imprisoned in his glass cage. Seated upon the projection formed by the hull of the pinnace, I inhaled the salt breeze with delight. 
By degrees the fog disappeared under the action of the sun's rays, the radiant orb rose from behind the eastern horizon. The sea flamed under its glance like a train of gunpowder. The clouds scattered in the heights were colored with lively tints of beautiful shades and numerous mare's tails, which betokened wind for that day. But what was wind to this Nautilus which tempests could not frighten? I was admiring this joyous rising of the sun, so gay and so life-giving, when I heard steps approaching the platform. I was prepared to salute Captain Nemo, but it was his second, whom I had already seen on the captain's first visit, who appeared. He advanced on the platform, not seeming to see me. With his powerful glass to his eye, he scanned every point of the horizon with great attention. This examination over, he approached the panel and pronounced a sentence in exactly these terms. I have remembered it, for every morning it was repeated under exactly the same conditions. It was thus worded. Notron respock lorny virch. What it meant I could not say. These words pronounced, the second descended. I thought that the Nautilus was about to return to its submarine navigation. I regained the panel and returned to my chamber. Five days sped thus, without any change in our situation. Every morning I mounted the platform. The same phrase was pronounced by the same individual. But Captain Nemo did not appear. I had made up my mind that I should never see him again when, on the November 16th, on returning to my room with Nan and Consile, I found upon my table a note addressed to me. I opened it impatiently. It was written in a bold, clear hand, the characters rather pointed, recalling the German type. The note was worded as follows. 16th of November, 1867. To Professor Aronnax, on board the Nautilus. Captain Nemo invites Professor Aronnax to a hunting party which will take place tomorrow morning in the forests of the island of Crespo. He hopes that nothing will prevent the professor from being present and he will with pleasure see him joined by his companions. Captain Nemo, commander of the Nautilus. A hunt, exclaimed Ned. And in the forests of the island of Crespo, added Consile. Oh, then the gentleman is going on terra firma, replied Ned Land. That seems to me to be clearly indicated, said I, reading the letter once more. Well, we must accept, said the Canadian. But once more on dry ground, we shall know what to do. Indeed, I shall not be sorry to eat a piece of fresh venison. Without seeking to reconcile what was contradictory between Captain Nemo's manifest aversion to islands and continents and his invitation to hunt in a forest, I contented myself with replying, let us first see where the island of Crespo is. I consulted the planisphere and in 32 degrees 40 minutes north lat and 157 degrees 50 minutes west long, I found a small island recognized in 1801 by Captain Crespo 
and marked in the ancient Spanish maps as Roca de la Plata, the meaning of which is the Silver Rock. We were then about 1800 miles from our starting point and the course of the Nautilus, a little changed, was bringing it back towards the southeast. I showed this little rock lost in the midst of the North Pacific to my companions. If Captain Nemo does sometimes go on dry ground, said I, he at least chooses desert islands. Ned Land shrugged his shoulders without speaking and consoled and he left me. After supper, which was served by the steward mute and impassive, I went to bed, not without some anxiety. The next morning, the 17th of November, on awakening, I felt that the Nautilus was perfectly still. I dressed quickly and entered the saloon. Captain Nemo was there, waiting for me. He rose, bowed, and asked me if it was convenient for me to accompany him. As he made no allusion to his absence during the last eight days, I did not mention it and simply answered that my companions and myself were ready to follow him. We entered the dining room where breakfast was served. M. Aronnax said the captain, pray share my breakfast without ceremony. We will chat as we eat. For though I promised you a walk in the forest, I did not undertake to find hotels there. So breakfast as a man who will most likely not have his dinner till very late. I did honor to the repast. It was composed of several kinds of fish and slices of holothurity, excellent zoophytes and different sorts of seaweed. Our drink consisted of pure water to which the captain added some drops of a fermented liquor extracted by the Kamschacha method from a seaweed known under the name of Rhodomenia pomata. Captain Nemo ate at first without saying a word. Then he began. Sir, when I proposed to you to hunt in my submarine forest of Crespo, you evidently thought me mad. Sir, you should never judge lightly of any man. But Captain, Believe me, be kind enough to listen and you will then see whether you have any cause to accuse me of folly and contradiction. I listen. You know as well as I do, Professor, that man can live underwater providing he carries with him a sufficient supply of breathable air. In submarine works, the workman, clad in an impervious dress, with his head in a metal helmet, receives air from above by means of forcing pumps and regulators. That is a diving apparatus, said I. Just so, but under these conditions the man is not at liberty. He is attached to the pump which sends him air through an india rubber tube, and if we were obliged to be thus held to the Nautilus, we could not go far. And the means of getting free? I asked. It is to use the requirel apparatus, invented by two of your own countrymen, which I have brought to perfection for my own use, and which will allow you to risk yourself under these new physiological conditions without any organ whatever suffering. It consists of a reservoir of thick iron plates, in which I store the air under a pressure of 50 atmospheres. This reservoir is fixed on the back by means of braces, like a soldier's knapsack.
Its upper part forms a box in which the air is kept by means of a bellows and therefore cannot escape unless at its normal tension. In the requiral apparatus such as we use, two india rubber pipes leave this box and join a sort of tent which holds the nose and mouth. One is to introduce fresh air, the other to let out the fowl, and the tongue closes one or the other according to the wants of the respirator. But I, in encountering great pressures at the bottom of the sea, was obliged to shut my head, like that of a diver in a ball of copper, and it is to this ball of copper that the two pipes, the inspirator and the expirator, open. Perfectly, Captain Nemo, but the air that you carry with you must soon be used. When it only contains 15% of oxygen, it is no longer fit to breathe. Right. But I told you, M. Horonax, that the pumps of the Nautilus allow me to store the air under considerable pressure, and on those conditions the reservoir of the apparatus can furnish breathable air for 9 or 10 hours. I have no further objections to make, I answered. I will only ask you one thing, Captain Al, can you lay your road at the bottom of the sea? With the Ronkorf apparatus, M. Horonax, one is carried on the back, the other is fastened to the waist. It is composed of a Bunsen pile, which I do not work with by chromate of potash, but with sodium. A wire is introduced which collects the electricity produced and directs it towards a particularly made lantern. In this lantern is a spiral glass which contains a small quantity of carbonic gas. When the apparatus is at work this gas becomes luminous, giving out a white and continuous light. Thus provided, I can breathe and I can see. Captain Nemo, to all my objections you make such crushing answers that I dare no longer doubt. But if I am forced to admit the Requirel and Ronkorf apparatus, I must be allowed some reservations with regard to the gun I am to carry. But it is not a gun for powder, answered the captain. Then it is an air gun. Doubtless. How would you have me manufacture gunpowder on board without either saltpetri, sulfur, or charcoal? Besides, I added, to fire underwater in a medium 855 times denser than the air, we must conquer very considerable resistance. That would be no difficulty. There exist guns, according to Fulton, perfected in England by Philip Coles and Burley, in France by Fursey, and in Italy by Landy, which are furnished with a peculiar system of closing, which can fire under these conditions. But I repeat, having no powder, I use air under great pressure, which the pumps of the Nautilus furnish abundantly. But this air must be rapidly used? Well, have I not my Requirel Reservoir, which can furnish it at need? A tap is all that is required. Besides, M. Aronax, you must see yourself that, during our submarine hunt, we can spend but little air and but few balls. But it seems to me that in this twilight and in the midst of this fluid, which is very dense compared with the atmosphere, shots could not go far nor easily prove mortal. Sir, on the contrary, 
With this gun every blow is mortal, and however lightly the animal is touched, it falls as if struck by a thunderbolt. Why? Because the balls sent by this gun are not ordinary balls, but little cases of glass, invented by Leenybrook, an Austrian chemist, of which I have a large supply. These glass cases are covered with a case of steel and weighted with a pellet of lead. They are real Leyden bottles into which the electricity is forced to a very high tension. With the slightest shock they are discharged and the animal, however strong it may be, falls dead. I must tell you that these cases are size number four and that the charge for an ordinary gun would be 10. I will argue no longer. I replied, rising from the table, I have nothing left me but to take my gun. At all events, I will go where you go. Captain Nemo then led me aft, and in passing before Nance and Gonzalo's cabin, I called my two companions, who followed immediately. We then came to a kind of cell near the machinery room in which we were to put on our walking dress.